0: sound of that song in the sanctuary, uh, the Via Dolorosa, we are reminded of the season we find ourselves in and we want to just pause and say, thank you, Lord, for everything that you have done for us and that you are doing. Even as we prepare for Passover and entering into the time of Jesus's passion, again, we thank you. For all that you have done. I praise you today, Father, for this time of self-examination because Passover is a time when we get all the leaven out of our house. Oh, God, let us just continue the purging process so that we can offer up the pure worship unto you. And as we go through Passover, we remember the shed blood of the lamb, Jesus' substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection. Father, as we come into the first fruits and we see him rise up and ascend and enthroned, and Father, as we come through this season that some would call Passover, others unleavened bread, let us indeed see Christ in the Passover. And now, Father, let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Uh, Father, would you take the thoughts and the impressions and the dreams and visions you've given me For this night, form them into pure words that will minister life to all of those that are here. We thank you for the faithfulness of this church and their attendance this week. And I pray now in Jesus' name that you'll multiply your great grace in our life. I declare thine is the kingdom, O God. Thine is the power. And thine is the glory. And you be exalted above all else. In Jesus' name. And everyone say it. Amen. Amen. Well, would you take your Bible or your digital instrument or wherever you are pulling your scriptures from tonight, and hold it up and make this declaration after me. Say this after me. This is my Bible. Though there are many in the world, this one is mine. This one is mine. I, can be I can be what it says I could be. I can do what it says I could do. I can have. have what it says I could have. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. He that comes to God must believe that He is, and He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. Because I am a diligent seeker of God, my life will be better. Because I have heard the word of faith. Do you believe that? Yes. I believe that. Let's make our lives better. Amen? Amen. Amen. You could be seated in the company of God's saints and in the presence of the Lord. The Lord has led us this time together with you to this incredible book called the Book of Malachi. Some of you have been on the journey with us since Sunday morning, and you know that the word Malachi means messenger. The word Malachi, messenger, my messenger is used 34 times in this book. We have seen a man that has now come out of Babylonian and Persian captivity, 70 years of captivity. And now God has brought them to the place of returning them to the land, and Israel does not get back into the land. But that in a few years, they begin to go back to their old ways. After seeing God do such a marvelous work in bringing them back to the land. All of a sudden they begin to offer up leftovers to the Lord. The Lord then starts off this book by declaring in chapter one, I have loved you. But then he asked the question, where is my honor? He then begins to review their worship practices and he begins to indict them as he begins to say, you have defiled my table. And they begin to respond, how have we defiled your table? And and he tells them, because you have brought in that which is lame, that which is blind, that which is blemished, and that which is crippled. They were bringing God leftovers rather than the best. He says then in. Malachi 11, the prophetic word that the Lord is going to have a day that is coming, that from the rising of the sun to its going down, the name of the great God shall be declared among the Gentiles. God then prophesies through this messenger that in every place his name, the people will offer pure worship unto him, and that's what God wants. And I believe that he comes to Faith Christian Center and All the churches that have attended these meetings with Pastor Peg and Pastor Ray and and Pastor and and, and the other pastors that have attended. That as we have attended these times with Pastor Charles, that uh, all of God wants from us is to shake some dust off of our worship. Because it's possible to get into ritual and not reality. Anything that you do on a regular basis can become routine, lose its passion lose its significance, lose its value. He says, I have loved you. Where is my honor? He then goes after the priest. And I said that a priest in the house of the Lord is a worshiper. And the worshipers, whenever you see the word priest in the Old and New Testament, these were just worship leaders. And whether you and I recognize it or not, the worship leaders are more than those that just are instrumentalists and musicians, those that have good Vocal skills and lead from the platform, but all of us are kingdom of priests now for we are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. And whenever we go out into the community, we become examples of worshipers in our community. He begins to tell them that they have gotten tired and the table. The Lord has become contemptible in chapter two and he rebukes them and he chastens them to return unto the Lord and not only offer up pure worship as in chapter 111, but also righteous worship that would come before him. He then goes after them and says, listen, worship is not only in your relationship with me, but your relationship with one another. And he said, and you have hindered the worship experience if you are unmarried by marrying pagan us that were around. And they were marrying the Canaanites and the parasites and the Amorites and the Ammonites and the termites and the parasites and everybody else. They had all these ites in their life. And as they begin to marry all of these folks, God was not so much interested in foreigners as much as he knew that if they married these foreigners, they would turn away the people's hearts, the foreign gods and foreign practices. Therefore, at that time, Israel had a prohibition. Don't do it. We exhorted those that were unmarried who are looking for and anticipating, maybe even expecting to be married, marry in the faith. Marry someone that is a follower of Jesus Christ. The New Testament says, marry in the Lord. Do an investigation. You would investigate a car before you bought it. Okay, not too many amens again. You would do an investigation in a home or a house before you bought it. And your marriage can be the closest thing to a heaven or a hell you can experience. And so doing investigation and marrying the Lord, he then shifts from the unmarried people to the married people in chapter two of Malachi. And he says, and this other thing, the second thing you have done, and they were putting away their wives for no reason. And he says that she is still the wife of your youth. And he says, therefore, stop putting away your wife because she's a wife of your covenant. And I was a witness at the covenant of now. What God does is he convicts them of breaking covenant, both the unmarried people and the married people in their married choices and in their rapid divorces and many divorces. America's biggest problem is not homosexuality, lesbianism, bisexualism, transvestites, the LBGTQ community. I found that when I was listening to your local news before we came here, they've just put an LBGTQ community center on one of your campuses in this region. It was being publicized and celebrated. We in full operation in 2015. But that is not America's biggest problem. America's biggest problem is that we are covenant breakers. 50% of people that enter into the covenant marriage wind up in failure. And God then took some time that night and Russ shook off some of the dust of the residue of divorce. Because some people have been victimized by divorce. Our children have been impacted. And I believe that God's a healer. And he can cut off some of the residue, some of the dust and the stigma that is left from divorce. Last night, we went to the furnace and God came and described himself as a refiner's fire. And he said, I'm committed to refine the sons of Levi. Would you look at your neighbor and say, God's coming after your stuff? (laughs) And he said, it's going to burn like fire. He's going to come after your stuff. And he's coming after my stuff. No one will be exempt. Everyone that's joined to God, he's coming like a refiner's fire. He's going to put us in a furnace and he's melting us down like precious metal, silver and gold. To see what's there, he's melting us down and putting us in the heat, the baptism with fire. The Holy Ghost and with fire because he is committed to thoroughly purge the threshing floor. He is committed to remove all of the chaff from our life. He is committed to purify in chapter 3, the sons of Levi, all of those that are joined to the ministry. He's going to purify us. And listen, he cannot judge the world until he first starts in the house of the Lord. We are evaluated first and then the world. And once he gets us cleaned up, then we can go out And we can clean up the rest of the world. Listen, the word says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty to God, to the pulling down of strongholds. We cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And then this little verse that follows that verse says, and we have a readiness to revenge all disobedience. What's our obedience is fulfilled. You're not ready to tell anybody they're wrong until you clean up your own life first. So God comes to his house to clean us us, so that now he can come and he can judge and evaluate the world. As we bring it to a close now, only four short chapters, God comes back and he begins to wrap up his talk to his messenger. And now we come to chapter 3. And we come to verse number 13. 3.13 is where we are. And the writer of this particular book now comes to us. And we find this statement written in 3.13. I read New King James. He says, your words have been harsh against me. This is God speaking, says the Lord. Yet you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is useless to serve the Lord God. And friends, sometime when things get desperate in our life, we throw up our hands and say, what's the use? Why am I going through this? It doesn't seem like anything's going right for me. It doesn't seem like my prayers are being answered. It seems like others are getting ahead and I'm still in a stagnant place. And that's not language that is unique to the 21st century. He says, you have been harsh against me with your words. He said, because you're saying it's useless to serve the Lord. It hinders a worship experience when we enter into the worship experience by saying things like what's the use. I really believe that people that come habitually tardy and come into that routine. Many times they're just gotten into a routine. And say, Well, what's the use of going anyway? I'll get there when I get there. And when I get there, I ought to be glad I got there. I ought to be celebrated whenever I get there. That's a routine and God has to burn that out of our lives. They also said, secondly, and what profit is it that we have kept his ordinances and that we have walked uh, uh, as mourners before the Lord of hosts? They were also saying all these sacrifices that we've made. Mourning is, can be typical of fasting and prayer and mourning and studying. And when we give up things so that we can really press into the Lord. And he says, in keeping his ordinances, they were saying, what use is it really? They came on and they continued to talk to the Lord. And this is the way they were talking to God in 315. He says, and now we call proud, blessed, the proud, blessed. And those who are wicked are raised up and even tempt God and go free. What they begin to do is they begin to look and they say, listen, even people that don't serve God seem to be doing better than we are. And friends, it's a real temptation that when we look around and we look at the wealthy people in the world and those that are very rich and have accumulated this world's good, and then we look at ourselves, it seems like sometimes we're behind economically and we're behind in our accumulated goods. And people sometimes say, now, wait a minute now, this don't seem right. Years ago, a lot of faith teachers were proclaiming a big economic turnover. And one of the cornerstone scriptures they were using for that is that the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. And people are going around saying there's going to be a big economic turnover. And a lot of people didn't experience that. And either the wicked have no more wealth. And maybe that's why the wealth of the wicked didn't get to the righteous. Or maybe we are not yet righteous. And I had to do some real evaluation on that because there was a prophetic word that was released that there's going to be an economic change and turnaround. But maybe it's an attitude that maybe we are envying the wicked and the things that they have accumulated. And we didn't trust God's word that he said, if you will seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. He said, listen, the Gentiles have to seek after these things. But God said, if you'll get your priorities straight and if I am mine right, all of these things will be added unto you. They are harsh against the Lord by saying, listen, I'm tired of serving you. It's useless. I'm tired of following you. There's no profit in following your ordinances and walking in mourning. They are saying, listen, the proud seem to be blessed. The wicked seem to be raising up and they tempt God and they go free. Here's what God says as a response. And I think we need to hear this tonight as we wrap these series of meetings up. Then those who feared the Lord. In verse 16, Proverbs teaches us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You and I cannot even have wisdom unless we fear God. And the fear of God is a a godly respect towards him. The fear of the Lord is my having a reverential fear towards him. Then those who feared the Lord said, and the Lord listened and heard them. And it says, and a book of remembrance was written before him and those that feared him and who meditated on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord, on the day that I make up my jewels and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. And then they shall discern between the righteous and the wicked and between ones who serve God and the ones who does not. Listen to this. Behold, a day is coming, burning like an oven. That all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be as stubble. And the day of his coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. And they will be, they will leave them neither root nor branch. But you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings and you shall go forth and grow fat like a stalled, uh, a stall-fed calf. You're going to be full and fat. I told my wife, I said, I don't know how to explain this, but say you're going to be like a big old fat cow. <laughs> now, that was a beautiful analogy if you were a farmer get ready to take a cow to market. Okay, but if you say that to your girlfriend, you know, what do you think of me? You look like a big, stalled, fat, well-fed calf. It's not very flattering, but it loses something in the culture, okay? <laughs> he's, and what he's getting at, you're going to be full and safe. And then he goes on to say, and you shall trample the wicked under your feet. And they shall be as ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord. And remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I command In Horeb for all of Israel with the statutes and with the judgments. And I will send Elisha the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And the hearts of the children to the fathers. Lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Now, as we examine these verses, it's fascinating because God comes and he says, listen, people of God, you're getting close to blaspheming my name because you're saying that I am having favoritism towards evil and not towards the righteous. You see, we read Psalm 37 verse one last night that says, do not fret because of evil doers and don't not be envious towards workers of iniquity for they shall soon be cut off as grass and wither as the herb listen the prosperity of the wicked is short lived but no matter how much the wicked seem to prosper and God's people seem to get into complaining hear me there's always a remnant of folk who still fear the lord they still believe that God's going to come through and do what he says Sometimes it looks pretty hopeless, but they believe God's going to do what he says. And that's what we see in those. And God likens it. And he said, and I heard the righteous saying, hey, man, I'm going to still trust you. And I want you to know that God's picture of him trusting the righteous, because I want to deal with those who have been declared righteous. He says, he says, listen, so a book of remembrance was written and God gives this analogy in the book of Malachi. That's also given in the book of the revelation that there are books being kept on you, it's almost like God says, let me help you to understand. He knows everything, but he gives us this picture. I'm writing down your deeds. I'm writing down your words. The Bible says even when you appear at the judgment seat, every idle word is going to be uh, taken into judgment. Everything you say. Everything I say. And sometimes it would be better to be quiet and say nothing than the other something before heaven and in the earth that you know nothing about. Sometimes we're taking on matters that are too great for us and it would be better to say, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer remain silent than to take on and utter something that is foolish before God. Because God said, open up a book of remembrance and he said, I'm going to remember what you say, because what we say creates things in the earth. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were created by the word of God. Your words carry weight in this earth. And when you say something, things are created and things go into movement in this earth. That's how your authority is released in the earth. God said it and it was so. God said it and it was so. God said it and it was so. And friends, our words are important and God remembers what we say. Friends, he said a book of remembrance was given for those who fear the Lord. And he says, and those that meditate upon them, and God says, there's going to come a day, and this is the hope that I have, that he's going to make up his jewels. All of those that are precious to him, he's going to gather them together, and he's going to keep them like precious jewels. Listen, when you you have jewels, you just don't put it out there in front of everybody for everybody to handle it, for everybody to see it. Listen, jewels are something that you keep, and they are precious, and he likens us into his jewels. You are valuable in God's sight. And he says, and I will spare them and I will spare their sons of those that serve me. You see, one of the big benefits of being one of God's remnant people and one of his jewels is simply this, that God has promised he's going to bless the righteous and with favor shall he compass them as with a shield. One of the things that God blesses you with is a thing called discernment. Hear me well. Discernment is one of your greatest weapons against end time discernment and deception. End time deception. As we live in these days, as we go further into the last days, all kind of end time deception is going to come. And discerning of spirits is your ability. The word discern means the ability to sift and to sort and to find out what's in operation, whether it is human spirit, whether it is demonic spirit, whether it is the spirit of God, whether it is angel, we're able to sift and sort what is right. And today, the standard is beginning to lean and people are not discerning truth when they hear it. You and I cannot say amen to everything. Amen. And there needs to be something that says uh, we need to discern between that which is uh, righteous and that which is wicked. And friends, I don't want to be adding an amen that which is wicked. And he says, you're going to be able to cut to the chase and say, that's right and that's wrong. And God needs some people in the community that fear God more than they fear man who will stand for righteousness no matter how unpopular it is. When I leave here, I'll go home and be in my office on tomorrow evening and also on Friday, but on Saturday, I will be engaged in a forum. That is going to be standing against violence and for and against injustice in our city. And they asked myself and one of our city councilmen and some businessmen and some therapists to come and talk about the violence that's happening in some of our communities in Columbus, Ohio. They told me that I'll have 10 minutes to make an opening statement. Then to open up the floors for kind of a town meeting and they wanted clergy included. And the question that they gave me is why are brothers killing brothers? And talk about the social and economic impact that makes brother kill brother. They're going to be quite surprised when I come to them Saturday. Because I'm going to tell them that just because we call ourselves brothers don't make us safe. Because the first brother killed the first brother. And until we get back to the beginning of things. And discern that when we get angry and when we get jealous. Of one another, murder will be the outflow of that. And until we deal with root causes, we're going to have murder in the community. I mean, the book of James, if I can look at a New Testament for a moment to discern between good and evil, because some people think that just more social programs will solve some of the stuff that's in our culture. I'm telling you that the root is deeper than that. The root is deeper than that. And all social problems come from personal problems. And sometimes we're trying to put a social band-aid on a spiritual problem. And it will not work, and we need to discern between. Listen, James chapter 4 asks this question. Where do wars and fights come from among you? There's the question. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? All social, economic, and group problems come from personal problems. External problems, whether they're in your family whether they are in your marketplace job, James one says any external problem comes from internal problems. And until we deal with what's going on inside of a man or woman, we'll never be able to deal with the outward symptom of what's going on the outside. Somebody needs to discern the root cause. And when you and I fear God, Malachi says, our worship will spill into the community because we'll be able to discern good and evil. When we moved into our community where our church is located in 1984, we moved into a community that was, um, that was underdeveloped, that was poor, and on one of our corners on Westerville and Agler, there was a strip bar where women were taking off their clothes to entertain men. On the other corner at Purdue and Agler, on our East Gate, was another strip bar where women were taking off their clothes to entertain men. Do you know what kind of elements nude bars and strip bars bring into a community? It brings a real element of perversion. So we started seeing rape, child molestation in that community. And we begin to pray for that community. And I told our saints, whether you leave and you go to the West or whether you leave and go to the East. I said, do what Jesus did in Mark chapter 11. I said, curse that thing from its root and say, no man eat fruit hereafter forever. And we begin to discern that this thing had overrun this community. There was a spirit of lust and perversion in the community. There's also a spirit of poverty in the community. No new housing, no new housing development had gone into that community for 19 years before we got there. We said that must change. So we developed our Christian Community Development Corporation. Now we've developed new housing of about 1,500 new housing units in that area together with senior citizens' homes so that we could change the atmosphere because we discerned that that was not right in that community. We then invaded the schools. They said that Christians couldn't come into schools. But when the schools were doing so poor and that violence, they came to the church and said, can y'all send some, can y'all send some mentors in here for our students? Can y'all send uh, 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 the fellowship of Christian athletes in the community? And my youth pastor went and I said, wear your collar when you go in there to make sure they know you're a man of God. Don't wear no sweater and no jersey up in there. And when he walks the hallways, he walks in there with civic attire, uh, a tab collar on. Everybody knows he's reverent. And though they tried to ban prayer out of school, when when things got desperate, they called him up and said, listen, one of our students got killed. Can you send your youth pastor over to talk to students? And And I said, you know, if he talks to them, if they ask for prayer, they said, if they initiate prayer, let him pray. Because you see, sometimes God lets things get so desperate that they'll call on us. And I want you to know that what Pastor John has been telling you prophetically is true. He's getting you ready for something. And when they call on you, you need to discern good and evil, who's serving God and who is not, and be able to call that thing out and neutralize it. The good news is, is now all of those nude bars are shut down and legitimate businesses are in there. The good news is that the schools have opened up to us in our community because you and I, I preach to our church, we must fear God. And if God can come to Raymond Christian Center and judge us, then he can go in and he can judge what's going on in the community. Judgment must begin at the house of the Lord. And as we begin to discern in our community and begin to prayer walk our community and people begin to say, well, how do we know what spirits in operation? I said, look and call it what you see, man. If you see poverty, call it a poverty spirit. If you see perversion, call it a perversion spirit. I said, don't interview it. I said, the ideal is not to interview devils. I said, Jesus did that one time. How many are you? And I said, we need to discern. And when I talked to the single people the other day, I mentioned the fact that in our church, I tell young men and women, when you meet somebody, you're thinking about marriage, come and introduce them to your apostle. Come and introduce them to your pastors. I said, I want to look in their eyes and say, what's your name? Because some people will answer, my name is Legion. And we are many. I need to know what I'm dealing with. And they bring in folks sometimes to the church that are nervous, cause demons get nervous around righteous folk. They all fidgety and caring. on. They wanting, come on, I gotta go somewhere. You ain't gotta go nowhere. Eight o'clock Sunday morning, not even ten o'clock yet. Where you gotta go on Sunday morning ten o'clock? Just nervous. Some spirits are up there. And friends, we begin to discern not only what's going on inside of people inside of our church, but we begin to discern what's going on in the community. And friends, discernment is one of the greatest weapons we have against in time, in time deception. And friends, he wanted them to have discerning because you and I have to discern whether something is true and righteous worship as he's described here or whether there's just activity. There's been a fervor and a passion. It seems like the worship in this place had gone up another level because I could hear and I could sense God dropping down. It's not that he's not here, but his conspicuous presence is now being known. Nobody has to tell somebody. Did you feel that? No, God is here. I sense him. I feel him and you know he's here when nobody has to prophesy, but you hear his voice talking to you. In the worship, even our sister when she was singing the Via Della Rosa, saying in English. I understand English. Yo hablo hablo espanol un poquito. (laughs) But I knew what she was singing was right. I said, oh yeah, that's God, that's God, that's God. And friends, I think that it's important that you and I are able to discern between good and evil. And God says, when you fear me, you're going to be able to do that. See, your discernment will tell you when to go to a place and when to stay in a place. Discernment was what led Elisha down to a brook. But discernment was the same thing when the brook dried up and the raven stopped coming, led him to a little widow's woman's house. Paul had some folks running around confirming his ministry, but it was coming from a demonized woman. She was saying the right thing, but it was a wrong kind of spirit. And you and I cannot even look at words. We have to be able to discern and sift Behind the words. And James says. If you want to deal with public problems. You have to deal with personal problems. Because fights and wars. Whether it's in your family. Whether it's in your workplace. Whether it's in the church. Or whether it's in the community. Comes from your members internal problems. All public problems. And social problems. Come from internal problems. And that's why Jesus wants to be our personal savior. Because as our personal savior. He can solve those personal problems problems God then comes and says let me tell you what the status of the wicked is going to be in chapter 4 he begins to now bring it to a close he says listen the day is coming and I'm going to burn like a fire like an oven and friends why do we evangelize why do we want pure worship not only in our homes and in our church and in our marriage but also in the community because there's a day called judgment day coming now, now a lot of people say that the church is too judgmental I don't believe that we preach about judgment final judgment eternal judgment enough we need to warn people that there's a judgment day coming. Yeah. There's a day that it's coming. And friends, when it's coming, Malachi 4, 1 says, Behold, the day that's coming that's going to burn like an oven. And he says, And all the proud, yes, all who uh, do wickedly will be a stubble. That day of the coming shall burn them up and they shall neither be left. Root nor branch. Look in the Revelation chapter 20, please. Because he talks about there's a day when the wicked shall be judged. See, there's a door opened up for everybody right now where everybody can come to the Lord. I believe that God is not pleased with the perishing of any people because his word says he desires none perish, but all come to the knowledge of the truth. But we need to be aware today that there is a hell. And in the Revelation chapter 20, as John closes out his writing from the Isle of Patmos, he says this. He says, listen, in verse 11, 2011, the Revelation, the Revelation is the last book in the New Testament, like Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. And in the Malachi, in the Revelation to 11, this New Testament reflection, watch this. He says, and I saw the great white throne and he that sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. They're trying to run and hide, but they cannot. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And notice this. Remember he talked about the book of remembrance was written? Notice this picture. And the books were open. And another book, singular, was open, which is the book of life. And it says, and the dead was judged according to their works, By the things that were written in the books and the sea gave up its dead that were in it and death and Hades that's like the grave delivered up the dead that were in them and they were judged each one according to their works and death and Hades the grave were thrown into the lake of fire and this is a second death. Wouldn't it be a shame to die once be raised up and evaluated or called forth and evaluated. And then God says away from me and then be cast into the lake of fire for the second death. The second death is anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Friend, there is a place called hell. It's the final place for all who have rejected the gospel all unrighteous and folks say would God be just in doing that? Yes when he's given everybody a chance to respond to this glorious gospel and friends some people say you can be born twice and die once or you can be born once and die twice you be born and born again and you may face physical death unless you're alive and well when he comes, then you'll be changed. All those insurance premiums will have been in vain. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, if you're not economically solvent and economically solid, insurance can help to carry on the lack of your income for your family. However, if you're alive when he comes, the Bible says those that are alive at his coming in 1 Corinthians 15. They shall be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. It says that this mortality shall put on immortality. When I'm mortal, I can die. I will die. I'm subject to death. When I'm immortal, I cannot die. I will not die. Not subject to death. It says this corruption shall put on incorruption. Whatever killed this body, whether it was cancer, whether it just wore out, whether it was tuberculosis, whatever killed this body, that thing will be neutralized and I'll be raised up in corruption. Even the corruption of the flesh that may happen in death shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And this natural body will pick up up a glorified body, a body that's not limited by these earthly restrictions. But that's not the only glorious picture at the end. There's also a great white throne. And at the end, the Malachi talks about the reason I want pure worship and I want... People, the fear me says the Lord is because he kind of looks way down the road and he said, now there's a fire that for the righteous is refining us so that we can be like him and be like jewels. But then he says, but let me tell you, there's another fire at the end and this would not be a fire of refinement. And there's a doctrine out there called the doctrine of ultimate reconciliation. And it says that that ultimately everyone's going to be saved. And ultimate reconciliation even says Satan himself will be saved. You need to discern that. There are Unitarians out there that says everybody's going to be saved. Including Hindus, Buddhists, atheists, agnostics, everybody. And friends, I want you to know God says, no, there's going to come a day. And here's the picture when the judge comes in. And this is not the judgment seat where all of the righteous come. The righteous will appear on a judgment seat. It's almost like an Olympic stand, and depending on how you ran, will determine the reward you'll get. Now you know in a marathon, it's not about finishing first. It's about finishing the course. One of my friends, David Ireland, you know, uh, over in Montclair, New Jersey, Jersey, Christ Church, a few years ago started uh, running marathons. And he started running marathons to lose weight. First he started swimming, then he started running. And David, when he invited me to his church, we were sitting down at dinner, and he says, you're going to be on a marathon, because when he invited me to his church, uh, their church has seven services on a weekend. Imagine that. Their their Rockaway location has two services, and their Montclair uh, church has five services, one on Sunday night and four on Sunday morning. Started at 7.30 on Sunday morning going to about 3.30 afternoon. I said, now where am I preaching? He says, you're preaching in Montclair five times on a Sunday morning. I invited my wife to come. She said, I ain't that saved. <laughs> she said, do what? You're going to preach Saturday night and then four times on Sunday morning? 7.30, 9.30, 11.30, 130. She said, no, I ain't that saved. Yeah, stretch your hand towards Sister Scales, okay? <laughs> and so David said, I'm preaching out of Rockaway. I'm going to preach twice over there at Saturday night and Sunday morning. And You're going to preach at Montclair now. Now, just a little sidebar. I never talked to anybody. I started preaching in 1973, 1973. And, and I've preached in 23 different nations. Never have asked anybody to preach anywhere. Never have talked to anybody about money when I go to preach anywhere. Never. If I feel like God wants me to come, even if a church can't get me there, I'll pay to get there, drive, fly, whatever needs to, if I believe it's an assignment of God. However, when he told me I was preaching five times, (laughs) I looked at him and I said, listen, I said, your honorarium better reflect the magnitude of work I'm doing. And then I looked at him, John, and I said, there better be some honor in that (laughs) rarium. So when I got on my plane and they rolled me out to the seat, you know, after I preached these five times up the in the envelope and I had a Shondium. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Okay. So, so they did all right. But David told me, he said, man, you're gonna be preaching in a marathon. He said, so pace yourself. He said, pace yourself. He said, I started running marathons and I know about pacing. And he was trying to qualify. I understand you can run lots of marathons around the United States, but you have to run a certain time to qualify for the Boston, the one that's famous around here. And I said, David, when you uh, run a marathon, I said, what do you think about? Because we're talking about where those that fear God appears when he makes up his jewels. And he says, he says, what you do is you think about the course. He says, you can't think about those that are running ahead. He said, he said let me tell you about the first marathon I ran. He said, the first marathon he ran he said he was crossing the halfway point, and they announced that a guy from Ethiopia had crossed the finish line. Yeah, them, them African brothers and sisters from the continent. They, they know how to run the marathons. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And he said, you can't compete with them. And I asked him, how long is a marathon? How long is it? How, how far is a marathon? Somebody asked me if I ever run a marathon, and I said, how far is it? And they told me that. I think they told me the same thing, 26.2. And you know what I told them? I said, every time I think about running 26 miles, I go to sleep until that thought goes away. Well, that ain't funny. (laughs) And he told me you got to concentrate on the course and friends, let me tell you, don't try to compete with your husband or your wife, your friends, your neighbors, your brothers and your sisters, other saints have started before you or after you just run the course that's set before you cause the goal in this race is to finish the course. I fought a good fight. I finished my course and I kept the faith and God will give you reward based on how you ran. He'll give you reward based on how you did in the marathon. But that's not the only place that there'll be reward at the end. The other place is called the great white throne. And the only picture that I have of this is every now and then, I don't know what happens up here in Massachusetts. Some of the saints get in trouble and I have to go to court. Saints in my church. Now, I wish I could tell folks, well, they're really not a member. They just worship there sometime. But no, they're saints in my church that get in trouble. And they have to go to court. Most of the time is something that they did before Christ B.C. And now it's caught up with them. And I went to court one time. It was a federal trial, drug charge. And I'm sitting in the court and the court case is done now. And it's judgment day. John, you've probably experienced this as an attorney. And the judge comes in and they open up the books. And there are several indictments that have now become charges that this individual has now been found guilty on. And before she came up for judgment, the judge was looking at this guy's judgments. And he was saying, yep, on that count, 36 months. On that one, 60 months. On this one, 72 months. And I leaned over to the guy next to him. I said, what's with all this month stuff? He said, brother, divide by 12. He said, 72 months, that's, he said, man, he said, that's six years, man. He said, 36 months, that's three years. And then I found out the judges can run them consecutively or concurrently. If they run them on top of each other, you know, you'll do them all at the same time. And then you finish your 36 months and then you 20, you finish your 24 and that's done. And then you can finish your 36 and then you got to run your 72. He said, but sometimes they'll just string them all out. Judges have those discretion. You serve your 24 months, then you serve your 36 months, and then you serve your 72 months. Some of you are nodding. I'm not going to point you out. My discernment would help me, though. <laughs> and that man said, This judge is handing out some serious time in here. There were no smiles in there. Everybody was straight face because all the plea bargaining was done. If you had a chance to take something lesser and you skipped the plea, There was no more negotiation. Couldn't throw yourself on the mercy of the court anymore. That day's over with. You had your chance. There's a song that was sung at the end of every Billy Graham crusade. Cliff Barrow sung it. It was simply called Just As I Am. It's a judicial song. Full of mercy without one plea. But that thy blood was shed for me. And now thou bids me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. The only plea bargain in heaven is the blood of Jesus. Who stood in substitution for me. That over these next three days we will celebrate. You took my crime, my penalty, and you bore it. The law is satisfied because on that cross, you took my sin and the judgments are satisfied. But if you reject God's love, you're saying, I can handle your wrath. The book of Malachi says I ought to offer pure worship and righteous worship and live right and holy as a married person, as an unmarried person, as a true worshiper and as a priest. Because a day is coming, says Malachi. "that I will come. And I will come like burning like an oven. And everyone that is proud, those who thought that they could handle and knew it all. Those who said God's wrong. I know what's going on. There's no hell, he said, they'll be burned up. They'll be burned like chaff. In that day, they'll neither be left root nor branch. I'm not fearful of God in terms of alarm, dread, and the fact that he might throw calamity on me. But let me know, I I do live with an awareness though that there's what's called a great and dreadful day of the Lord out there. When I saw, sat there in that court and I saw people that I knew getting serious time, my heart sunk. And when I walked away from that court and ran, walked down High Street to the parking lot, God says, this is what it's going, that's a glimpse of what it's going to be on Judgment Day. And you know what? It changed the way I gave altar calls because I like to stand at an altar call and say, listen, there are people out here that are on their way to hell, and I want to stand between you and hell and tell you you don't have to go. I said, I want to tell you, take the deal. Any good defense attorney will tell you, man, you better take this deal because it ain't going to get no better than this. And sometime another deal will come and say, take the deal because God in his mercy will keep on offering us the deal. But if you die in sin and you don't take the deal, you're lost. And there may be some people that are here that, that you're saying, I'm weighing it. And I, want, I know I need to take the deal, but I'll do it some other time. Right now, today, when you hear his voice. Harden not your heart. And I'm going to finish in a few moments, but if you can't wait for that moment, man, if you know that you are outside of the will of God, And you know that there's a hell and there's a judgment day coming. And you will say, I need to get it right now. Anytime you get ready as I finish this sermon, it may be, I might be still talking. If I see you walk down that aisle, I know that you're ready to come and you can come now. You don't have to wait till the end. If you know that God has convicted my heart and I need to come, you come now. You may be a teenager. Don't play with this thing because your eternal soul is in place. Come. Because there's a day that he will come and he won't be a loving savior. He won't be a gentle shepherd. He'll be coming as a judge to judge all that are unrighteous, all that are proud. And in that day, as the revelation shows and as Malachi shows, things will burn like a fervent heat. But look at the contrast in verse number two, Malachi 4.2. He says, but Whenever I see a but, that kind of is a conjunction to kind of erase what was previously said. Whenever you see however or but in a conversation, just kind of erase. I will give you $100, but. Kind of erases all of that. He says, but to you that fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. God is committed for those of you who are righteous. He's going to make you whole. He's going to fix it. He is going to create in you a clean heart, renewing you a right spirit. And when he gets finished healing you, he wants to heal you spirit, soul, and body. He wants to heal our memories. He wants to heal our past. I don't care what kind of crazy family we come through. He said, I'm going to heal you. He said, I don't care what kind of physical disease you come through. The son of righteousness will heal and he will bring and he will rise with healing in his wings. Friends, he's going to bring healing to us. And he says he shall go forth and he says "And you're going to be full and safe like a fatted calf. And he says, and you shall trample the wicked under your foot as under ashes. He says on the day in that day, says the Lord, I believe that there's going to be a day where God will even erase the ashes in the memory of this thing called sin in a new heaven and a new earth. He's going to heal us. He is committed to our wholeness. Yes. He wants to see nothing missing, nothing broken. He's going to heal you of your condemnation because sometimes some of us mutilate ourselves with self-mutilation. God has forgiven us and we're still there beating ourselves up, you big dummy. Why did you do that? And why did you mess up on that again? And they took you back and now here you are again. And God said, I'm going to so heal you that you won't even remember that you ever messed up before. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. You see, I believe in heaven we're going to hear no condemnation. No condemnation. No condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. He's able to do it. And it's one thing to receive physical healing. It's another thing to receive emotional healing. And the healing of our memory so that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he removes our transgressions from us. In that day, says the Lord of hosts. He then exhorts us in these last three verses. Remember the law and the statutes and the judgments he gave to Moses. All I want you to remember out of that verse on my time with that verse tonight is that God has a standard in the earth. And he says, I want you to remember I have a standard. He did not leave us in the earth to leave by ourselves to our own standard. Man, if I set the standard because God has worked a grace to me and I want to see people make it, I would always relax at some. And God said, no, we got to hold to the standard. And because I love people, I hold to his standard. And, friends, he says, you got to remember that I have a standard. And that standard I would evaluate everything by. You and me, none of us are exempt. And he says, I want you to remember that. And he's talking specifically to these worshipers because God gave Moses these laws because he said, I want to come down and dwell with you. He said, the reason I'm giving you this law is I want to come down and dwell with you. He wants to dwell with you in your house. He wants to dwell with you in your workplace. He wants to dwell with you in your school. He wants to dwell with us in our church. And he said in all of this law that he gave to Moses for worship, he said it's so that I might dwell with you. God does not want to be a distant God from us, but he wants to dwell with us. And friends hear me well. And he says, and I will send. Elisha, the prophet before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. God will not take us by surprise because he always sends a prophetic word. And hear me as I prepare to close. Now, he never leaves his church without a prophetic voice. Elisha, the prophet, he said, I'm going to sin. And Jesus says, you're waiting for Elisha. He said, but you missed him. He said, because one's not this John, Elisha. He was a voice that came to prepare the way of the Lord. And I like Elisha because the Malachi, the messenger, then morphs into this statement. I'm going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Listen, when there are no fathers in the home, homes suffered from some factors. We ministered on fatherhood at our men's advance that we went away to on Saturday. And we discovered that when there's no fathers in the home, children are 47.6% at greater risk to living in abject poverty. 47.6% when there's no fathers in the home. Four times as high as those when there is a father and a mother in the home. When there's no father in the home concerning drug and alcohol abuse, children are at a higher risk of drug and alcohol abuse when there's no father in the home. With a father in the home, emotional and physical health, there are fewer incidences of externalizing and internalizing bad behavior and behavior factors with a father in the home. With a father in the home, we have discovered that educational achievement is higher. With a father in the home, with a father in the home, there is less incident of juvenile delinquency with a father in the home. With a father in the home, without a father in the home, Teens and children grow and they're more subject to early sexual activity, the teen pregnancy, and they're more at risk to marrying somebody that doesn't even have a high school education. Fathers are a big factor in the home. And friends, here he says, unless I come and smite the earth with a curse, he says, here's the factor I want to do. I want to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. In our home church, we do a class called Majoring in Men. It's a three-year course for our men to teach them how to be a man, how to be a husband, and how to be a father. We go through nine of Dr. Emma Lewis Cole's books. Then we uh, collaborated with the Franklin uh, Franklin County Mental Health Services because we found out in our community in Franklin County in Columbus, Ohio, that the father factor causes a lot of social problems when there's no father connected. So they started a, a public program called the father factor to get fathers reconnected with their homes. Because they said when fathers are in the home, it not only helps the church, but it helps the whole city. And God said, if I want to break the curse of the earth, one of the things I need to do is get fathers back in the home. I now I need to get them back in her mind. I need to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Lest I come and smite to the earth with a curse. Why is this so incredibly important to our faith? Because when Jesus was asked, how do you pray, Lord? Teach us to pray. First thing out of his mouth. When you pray, pray our father. And friends, children receive a father wound when there's absentee fathers, abusive fathers, addictive fathers. And then fathers that are just disconnected from their children. I call it a father wound. And when that father wound is there, instead of looking at myself through the lens of the father God, I look at God through the lens of my natural father. And if my natural father was abusive, abandoned and absentee, if my natural father didn't do what he was supposed to do for me, then I have a warped sense of who God is and inside of Every human being's heart is a cry for a father. Listen, as we said in America tonight, 65% of all churches are women, 35% are men. In most churches, that's the average, white, black, red, yellow, brown, across all denominations, 65% women, 35% men. In our church in Columbus, Ohio, we used to almost be 50%, 50%. One time we were 51% women, 49% men, almost 50-50. We almost got there. Right now, we're 60-40 because you get enough cleaned up, Holy Ghost filled men, the women will find them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they'll come, they'll come. <laughs> they'll show up, brother. They'll show up, they'll show up. Yeah. <laughs> and we worked on our men. And, and women came in, they were surprised because they said, first church we ever came in, that the pastor's more interested in the men than the women. I said, because the church doesn't have a motherless problem. The church doesn't have a motherless problem. The earth doesn't have a motherless problem. Think of some of these big burly athletes. 350 pounds can run a 4, four 40. And when they say, will you have anything to say to the camera? They always saying, hi, mom. Because <laughs> there's no father located there. I told my kids, I've been in their life. I was there. I, I said, listen, before you came forth, you were not an accident. Not my children were an accident. They were playing. They're three years apart, born in June, July, no, August, no, July, August, and September. (laughs) Let me get it right. July, August, and September, three years apart, 77, 80, and 83. Three years apart. God was gracious. My wife said, I don't want two kids in diapers at the same time. So God was very gracious to us, a boy, a girl, and a boy. Now, we didn't come into agreement because I wanted five boys. She told me she wouldn't have five nothing. And she said, and one of them needs to be a girl. So the Lord honored her prayer. She overrode my prayer. But I wanted five boys. But I could have five boys in the natural, but you know what I've done? Like Elisha, and that's why it is the spirit of Elisha. Elisha adopted a young man named Elisha. And men, we cannot just be responsible for the children that comes out of our loins and out of our wife's womb. We have to now take a further responsibility for the young men that are in the church that are a fatherless generation and the young men in the community. I didn't start fathering when I became a biological father. When I was 18 years old, I became an assistant scoutmaster. When I was 21 years old, I was a scoutmaster of my own Boy Scout troop. When I got married at age 23, I had a Boy Scout troop of 24 boys fathering those boys. And I took responsibility for the boys that came out of the community, not only just the boys that came out of my loins. Friends, God said one of the factors to break the curse in the earth is to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Hearts of the children to the fathers, lest he come and smite the earth with a curse. Hear me. Every person in here, one of the voices you need to hear is the father's affirmation. You know, even after Jesus was baptized, and he was getting ready to enter into ministry before he got tempted of the devil in his baptism with John. When he came up out of the fa- out of the water, his father said, this is my beloved son in whom I well please Or something that gives us courage and strength to go through what we're getting ready to go through. When we hear the affirmation of a father and how many human beings exist in the church and have never heard their father say, you are a beloved son in whom I well please your beloved daughter in whom you're well pleased. If you ever see the videotape of my daughter when she got married, when we got my daughter, when, 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 when my daughter got married, they have what they call the daddy dance at the reception. Now I don't know what you believe in dancing. I don't care, really. <laughs> my daughter said at reception, "There's going to be a father-daughter dance." And when my daughter and I were there dancing at, at the wedding reception, she looked up at me, and all of a sudden she broke out crying. I reached into my pocket and handed her a handkerchief. Because you know every well-dressed man ought to have three handkerchiefs. (laughs) He ought to have one to wipe his sniffles. That's one. He ought to have one to accent his person. But he also ought to have a third one to give to any woman that's overwhelmed by the essence of his presence. (laughs) look at the man next to you and say, remember the third handkerchief. And I'm standing there dancing with my daughter and she gets overwhelmed by the essence of my press. She starts crying and I give her this handkerchief and she's watching, wiping her tears and she leans on my breast And I start holding her and everybody in the reception started crying. And they said, oh, my God, what's going on? And when we got back to the house, everybody asked her when they were bringing in the gifts and stuff, we get back to the house before they go on the honeymoon to Hawaii, her and her 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 husband and listen. And and they're saying, Yolanda, why were you crying? She said, I looked up in my daddy's face and she said, I knew that I was never ever going to go back and be able to live in this house again. And she said, and I knew that our relationship was going to be redefined. And she said, I said, oh, God, what have I done? Oh, "Oh, yes, sir. And tears was just rolling down her cheeks. Man, it made me a little moist myself there. (laughs) And men started reflecting on what it was going to be the day that they would give away their daughter. Because I have affirmed her. I affirm my son as men. Never called him boy. Never called him out of name. Never cursed at them. Called him by their given name. And affirmed them as beloved sons in whom I'm well pleased. I affirmed her like the king did the Shulamite woman. You're my love, my dove. You're the choice one. You're valuable. You're beautiful. Don't settle for anything. (laughs) Friends, both sons and daughters need to hear the voice of the father's affirmation. And he says, before I come and smite the earth with a curse, if I want to lift and break the curse off the earth. He said, one of the factors, and Malachi ends with this, is I'm going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. hearts of the children to the fathers lest I come. Smite the earth with a curse. Fathers, don't be afraid to tell your sons and your daughters you love them. Don't be afraid to tell your sons and daughter you affirm them. When they're doing good, affirm them real good. Tell them I'm pleased with you. Not just what you do, but who you are. Who you're becoming. When they're doing bad, affirm your love towards them. I say, I want you to know I love you. And I know you're out there in mess, but I want you to know I love you and I'm praying for you every day. I can't affirm and approve what you're doing, but I want you to know I love you. And I'm praying for you and I'm not letting go until you come in and walk in the purpose that God destined you to. I've had parents say, well, what do you do when a son or a daughter tells you don't pray for them? anymore?" I say, pray harder. Yes. <laughs> I say, well, ain't nothing but the devil. Look at your neighbor saying nothing but the devil. And the reason that the devil tells them to tell you that is because you 're starting to get through when you start breaking through that 's when the devil starts stalling this nine cents that 's when you know you 're getting close and friends he says in the last few verses here, Ray, you can come pastor ray i 'm going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers, unless I come and smite the earth with a curse and I want to charge the fathers in this congregation because fathers You're a big part of worship. I tell our fathers in our church, I said, come, come on time. I said, your children, your wife needs to see you standing in awe of God in worship. I said, your children, your wife, your family needs to see you standing lost in the presence of God. I said, something different happens in worship when there's a bass in the worship, not always soprano and alto. Something happens in worship when strong men are there worshiping the Lord. Something just happens. You see, I found out that women will bring passion to the church, and if there's anything that we need in a church, it's passion. But there's something about a strength that's brought to the church when men are in the church. When men are around in the sanctuary, there's a strength that comes to our son and our daughters, and Pastor John, I don't know what the makeup of of all the health ministry are, but one of my goals was, especially in our children's department, to make sure that there were men and women sprinkled all through that because I need to see our young kids from the cradle. My son-in-law, my daughter's husband, he works in our nursery in our church. They don't have any children yet, but he works in the nursery. And I said, Marshall, why do you do this? He said, I just believe that they ought to see a man in this nursery changing some diapers. He said, we have females, as always... Husbands and wives there, males and females. He says, he said, but I believe that they ought to see me there doing some things. See me there cleaning up, taking out trash, playing with them on the floor. And he says, I believe that they need to see me there. There's a real strength that's added. There's a real strength that's added, friends. When men are in Sunday school, when men are in Christian schools. And men, you may not have had a lesson on fatherhood. You might have gotten all your knowledge late, but I believe that God can redeem the years that the cankerworm, the caterpillar, the locusts have eaten up. In some cases, the wives start before the men do. But I'm telling you what, God can put you on an accelerated program. He can help you restore the years. And some of you are in blended families, so you know the spirit of adoption has taken place. I've seen that happen time and time in our church, because sons and daughters, they imitate, they imitate that dominant sex that's above them. My son, when he graduated, Jonathan, my oldest son, when he graduated from high school, was a wrestler, wrestled in the district championships, and, uh, Graduated weighing 135 pounds. I told him to lift weights all through high school. He wouldn't do it. But after he got out of high school, he started lifting weights. And I told him, I said, though you're small in stature, I said, "Uh, I think you have the same muscle mass that I have. You have the same muscle genetics. He started lifting weights and started putting on on, on muscle. So with his little short self, now, he walked. Jonathan now walking around like this, you know. Well, he gave birth to Marquise Lafayette Scales, my grandson grandson's a little guy and Jonathan comes walk into the house hey dad what's up Marquis comes in what's up Paw Paw I said you little grandson imitation being that model not only in how to walk and how to talk but how to stand and how to look and how to respond Our sons learn how to be a man from their father. Our daughters learn what they expect from a man from their fathers. I want to do one thing tonight before I go to my seat. I want to pray for fathers tonight. And if you're a father, biological or adoptive, or you might be a man that doesn't have children, but you're fathering through mentoring some young men, just want you to join me down here at this altar. Come on, fathers. Come on. And give them some encouragement as they come. Come on. Come on. Come on. That's right. You can do better than that. Look at all these men coming. Come on. Go ahead. Come on. Just as you are. Come on. Come. Come on in real close. Come on in here. Come on in here. You're the ones that that can stop the curse on the earth. I'm going to turn the hearts of the fathers. To the children and the hearts of the children, to the fathers, bless I come and smite the earth. Oh, yeah, I think this deserves a standing ovation right here. We're in it together, brothers. Amen. Yeah. We're a source of breaking a curse off the earth. I'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Hearts of the children to the fathers. Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And listen, there are fathers up here, some young, some older. And friends, there are fathers up here in different vocations. I believe that the wisdom that you need as a man can be found right among you. Some of you say, man, I'm a hard worker, but I need knowledge and finance. There's, there's wisdom among us. Some of you are saying, man, I know finance, but I don't know how to relate the other people. And there are people up here that can teach you how to relate to other folk. And friends, when he turns the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of children to the fathers, he breaks the curse off the earth. Could you lift your hand shoulder high? Now I'm gonna pray for all of us. Could everybody out here stretch your hand towards these men? Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I bring these fathers before you. And Father, some of us came late, some of us came early in life, but all of us understand our responsibility as men of God, as ministers, as models, as mentors. Father, all of us understand our responsibility as a man. We come before you as father because father, we know until we meet the father, our heavenly father, we don't know how to treat our sons and our daughters. But oh God, tonight I pray that there will be such an infusion of your fathering spirit inside of each one of these men that whether they're sons and daughters or toddlers, Whether, whether they're infants or toddlers, whether they're adolescents or young adults or adults, or maybe some of their, some of their sons and daughters are older, that they still have a responsibility as a man, a mentor, and a model, that they are a minister, a man of God, and Father, that they will speak as oracles of God. Father, give these men wisdom beyond their years for this day. Because we're dealing with a generation we've never seen a generation like this before in the earth. And we're sending our sons and daughters into a nation, and into a culture like we've never seen before. But you can give us wisdom and strength and power to steer them in the right way. Oh God, help us to infuse through affirmation our sons and our daughters with their identity, their destiny, their backbone, their strength of character. And I pray, Father, that you'll strengthen each one of these. And Father, not only their biological sons and daughters, but some of these are grandfathers here. And Father, maybe if we didn't do it right with the first generation, we'll do it with the second generation and the third generation. And Father, as fathers and grandparents and great-grandparents, we will see that all of our children shall be taught of the Lord and grace shall be the peace thereof. Now, Father, I come into agreement with them that in the last days you said you will pour out your spirit upon all flesh. Our sons and daughters shall prophesy. Our young men shall see vision. Our old men will dream dreams. And upon our handmaidens and our manservants shall you pour out of your spirit. And Father, finally, I pray that the word that's in these men's mouth shall not depart from their seed's mouth. From their seeds, seeds' mouth. And from their seeds, seeds, seeds' mouth in Jesus' name. And Father, I come against the curse that's coming on the earth. Calamity, alarm, disaster. And we break that thing as fathers. We stand as the guardians of our marriages. The guardians of our home. The guardians of the seed. We will crush the enemy's head when he dares step into our garden and into our church and into our community. For we are your rulers. And we thank you for that now in the name of Jesus. And then, Father, here at Faith Christian Center and the rest of the affiliated churches, bind us together. So that if any man stumbles, Father, that another man will grab hold of him and hold him up. And we'll not let go of each other until we, until we see this thing turn around in the church, Amen. turn around in our community, turn around in our homes, until we see Thy kingdom come. Yes. Thy will be done in the earth as it is in heaven. We believe you for this, and we thank you for it now. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Now, man, stand right.